never say die. Forty going on fourteen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Forty Going On Fourteen. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh, and I'm living proof you don't have to be a psychic to lock horrible things in little boxes inside your mind. If not, I probably would have murdered the other three years ago. <laughs> I count my blessings for every night that I survived when I was sleeping on the couch at the apartment. I think he's talking about us. <laughs> <laughs> Red Rom! <laughs> Red Rom. And part of Danny Torrance will be played by Gollum. <laughs> So this week we are talking about The Shining and Dr. Sleep, which is the book and movie sequel. If you ever wondered what happened to Danny Torrance afterwards, that question is answered. Thank you, Stephen King. Only good things. Yeah. He gets some therapy. He goes on to become like a pop star. Danny Torrance and the Asparagus. That was his band. If you like asparagus, you might like the shows on the Podcast Collective, such as I Am Salt Lake, Tales from the Hard Side, The Empty Rant Podcast, and of course, the Rad Dad Radio Hour. What? I suddenly regret using asparagus. (laughs) I wish I had a dollar. I could use some asparagus right now. I could use a dollar. (laughs) If you like asparagus, you can find our older shows on Apple Podcasts, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, PodbursaFabNewDefine.com, and all over the web. We are like a bad mold in your shower. We're all over the place. Too soon. Too soon? Too soon. (laughs) (laughs) What what happened this week that I don't know about? I showered. (laughs) (laughs) Bring around yeah. Rosie. And if you'd like to call in and talk about Pat showering, you can call 708 now wrap. That's 708 669 9727. Click and call on Facebook too. Facebook we don't have two? any. The sequel? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dr. Facebook. I can't even get on Facebook one. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Poor Pat. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> when this comes out, we you're not sure. Patrick still may be considered a bot by Facebook. Yeah, some communist turned in turned me in for being some kind of spam bot or something. I don't know. In reality yeah. comes out. Certainly wasn't me. Patrick's not real. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we don't have any voicemails, but we have an email. I've never been real. From Tommy the Duck. Who, oh uh, yeah. He messaged us and said the dude once said, I hate the fucking Eagles, man. And 21 Pilots once said, don't trust a song that's flawless. They're both right. Ducks to the front, Tommy the Duck. If you're going to try and justify hating on the Eagles with 21 Pilots quotes, you've already lost. I would double check that prescription, Tommy. You're not real, man. (laughs) Speaking of which, we uh, did the Big Lebowski. Well, we did the Cone Brothers show, but we're going to have to do the Big Lebowski show again when uh, Jesus Rolls comes out. Oh, yeah, yes. yes. Just throwing it out there. As you do. Like a ball. Nobody fucks with the Joelses. Okay, I think it's about that time. <laughs> I don't know where to take that. This week in music, movies, and TV. 
Marcus. All right, so Patrick did you, has. Did you say a Sporticus? A Sporticus. I want. I'm a Sporticus. I'm a Sporticus. Never did figure out. Who Wait a second, that was the name of the good guy from Lazy Town, wasn't it, Joel? Sporticus. <laughs> I believe so. That mo- that. <laughs> did your kids watch Lazy Town? Yes. That show was fucked up. Was Look at this though. net, which I just found. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. All right, so this week, Patrick has chosen, for some mysterious reason, May 23rd, 1980, which was the release of the original The Shining. The movie, not the book. The movie, not the book, yes. I almost I almost went with the book release, but I decided to stick with the movie, since that's what we're talking about. You could have. I wish I'd have gone with the book, because it would have been a much more interesting week, I'm sure. Mm. Or you could have done the Steven Weber movie release. Ugh. Or he could not have, and that would be better. We will talk about that later. All right. So with that to lead in, uh, music, the number one song in the land was Call Me by Blondie, followed up by Funky Town by Lips Incorporated. Or Lip Sync. I like Call Me. Yeah, they're both two good songs, really. To be honest yeah. With you. Solid songs by, you know, it's definitely just... I mean, good, just, just good old-fashioned disco. Which, I mean, yeah. I never understood the hate for disco. It's music that's made to be liked. It's like, that'd be like hating on... M&M's. A good pop song is a good pop song. That's my rule of thumb. Yeah. In general, I just, musically, I kind of stick to Ray Charles. His philosophy on music, there's just two types of music, good music and bad music. You like what you like, man. Yeah. All right. So, Ian, Kevin Curtis was an English singer, songwriter, musician, and lead singer and lyricist of the Pepe, 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 Asparagus. He was the lead singer and lyricist of the post-punk band Joy Division. Known for his bass, baritone voice, dance style, and songwriting, typically filled with imagery of desolation, emptiness, and alienation, Curtis suffered from epilepsy and depression. He committed suicide on the eve of Joy Division's first North American tour on May 18th at 23 years of age. His death resulted in the band's disillusion and the subsequent formation of New Order. Huh. That's a Mm -hmm. sad story. Yeah, I actually didn't know that. I like Joy Division. They're exactly not what they talk about their being. <laughs> that, yes. was... <laughs> that was a, that was the definition of an ironic name. Oh yeah, they they hit it with that. It's like, I, and I've had you know conversations with like people like, oh, have you ever? You know, I, they mentioned they like some sort of like depressing song. Now I'm like, oh, you know what you need to listen to? You need to listen to Joy Division. You'd totally yeah. love it if you like this. You know, it's really. Good. And then they come back and they're like, oh my god. Joy Division, and then followed up with the Happy Mondays. Yeah. Oh, geez. You got me into the Happy Mondays. Yep. Bauhaus, anyone? Mm. <laughs> uh, internal band conflict finally came to a head on May 17th for the band Kiss, as Peter Chris quit or got fired, depending on whose version you believe, for the first of three times. <laughs> Poor Peter yeah. Chris. He quit. was the cat, right? Yeah, he was the yeah. cat. Okay. What was what was his? Did he have like a, a weird name like Demon or whatever Starman? What was his? Was it just the cat? The cat. The cat. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Surprised he didn't get you know fired like three nine times. Well, anyway. I mean, he 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 was you know the as he called himself just a you know a, a simple Brooklyn kid you know who wasn't too smart. Gene Gene Simmons and the other guys would always like you know try to make him feel stupid, and so he used to get like mad and storm out of re- recordings and stuff all the time and. It kind of this was the first time it came to a head, and he just straight up quit. 
So mm. I'm the Peter Chris of this outfit. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> we didn't say it, dude. We didn't say a goddamn thing. Spirit animal. All right. It's Mike's <laughs> over there spitting up blood. We didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Chris is my spirit animal. <laughs> uh, Wooter Wally DeBacker, born May 21st, is known professionally as Gautier, a Belgian-born Australian multi-instrumentalist and singer-songwriter. He is a founding member of the Melbourne indie pop trio The Basics, who have independently released four studio albums and numerous other titles since 2002. Gautier's 2011 single, Somebody That I Used to Know, reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100, making him the fifth Australian-based artist to do so and the second born in Belgium after the singing nun in 1963. I like Gautier. I really like that single. Me too. Like, I don't think it really ever got old for me, even though it was totally overplayed. I agree with that. It happened to come out at the exact same time I was going through a breakup, and it was like it just felt like the perfect song. For I was like, "Yep." And he's got nice. He's got a nice voice. Yeah. Hmm. If you're not familiar, check him out. And finally, Andy Hurley, American drummer for Fall Out Boy and the Damn Things, was born May 31st. Okay, uh, we'll move on to movies then. The number one movie in the land was Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back, which opened in cinemas on May 21st. And arguably the best in the franchise. Hmm. I can get along with that. Yeah, I was going to say, for me, it's not even close. Yeah, it's definitely the best one. Although a lot of people, you know, I mean, Rogue One is a damn fine installment. Yeah, but it's much more divisive. Very true. Yeah, Empire Strikes Back, for the most part, people are all on board with that one. And there's no Muppets, although I like some of the Muppets. Hmm. And Pershner just struck gold. He was, he was the best director by far. Yeah. I was actually the the first Star Wars movie Suzanne saw. She saw Empire Strikes Back, then she saw A New Hope, and then she saw Return of the Jedi, and she had no idea what was going on. I was going to say, she's going to be really confused. Yeah. Why she seems to do that. His sister? What? Why is he kissing his sister? What kind of movie is this? <laughs> All right, Lane Edward Garrison was born on May 23rd. He's an American actor best known for the role of David Tweener, Apolskis on Prison Break. He had a recurring role in the first season of the series From Dusk Till Dawn, and he played Clyde's brother Buck Barrow in the miniseries Bonnie and Clyde. Oh. Mr. Hayat. No. Not that Garrison, sorry. <laughs> no. Thanks, Joel. Uh, so TV, top shows in the land were Dallas, The Dukes of Hazard, 60 Minutes, and M.A.S.H. I'm almost thinking that MASH should be remade, but at the same time, I'm like, no, nah, it's fine where it is. Yeah, I mean, it's almost inevitable that someone's going to try. I don't know if it'll be successful, though. The question is, is it a movie? Is it a miniseries? Is it a TV series? And are they doing it during the Korean War? Or are they going to make it Vietnam? Or are they going to make it modern? It's definitely no. going to be like a Desert Storm Afghanistan type war if they remake it. And it's probably going to be done within the next like four or five years i bet heard here first folks patrick's theory on mash i would think it would be a movie because it would be pretty risky to float it as a tv series i'm not even sure a pilot would get picked up i think well, a miniseries would be the best way to do it oh miniseries yeah. okay i could see that yeah i mean look at what it did for catch 22 night yeah. and day difference between the two a six episode one hour episode arc type thing yeah, yeah. Kind of that series 
I wonder who they'll get to play Spear Chucker Jones. Oh, shit. Probably no one. <laughs> I'd be more interested in Hot Lips and, uh, and uh, Hawkeye. Yeah. So this week's Saturday Night Live was hosted by Steve Martin. His eighth time hosting and the musical guests were Paul and Linda McCartney. The next week was Elliot Gould in his sixth hosting appearance. And the musical guest was the acronym of the week, which is KCNTC. I'm pretty sure that stands for Kansas City and the Crime. <laughs> uh, not that far off. Is it like uh, what's the day in the... Uh... I was just hoping to tweak Joel's nipples with that one. <laughs> I mean, you're not that far off. I mean, it's, it's, there's some there's some crime in Kansas City. They're trying to prove that they're not a cow town. I thought that Ooh. was the name of like their MLS team. Danny Torrance <laughs> and the Asparagus? The Kansas City Crime. Oh. Yes. But no, unfortunately, there's actually Kid Creole and the Coconuts, which I would have never picked up on. And they're not from Kansas City. So you're way off on that one, Josh. Sorry. Uh, This is also the Not Ready for Primetime Players final episode of Saturday Night Live after five seasons aired on May 24th. Hmm. So that was the original lineup then? Yeah. Yeah. Patrick, give me a Kid Creole and the Coconut song. I cannot pull up like any of their me, I, me either I, I would i actually didn't look it up i was i i should have but i didn't look anything up on them because i know there's an obvious one that i'm missing and i just cannot i can't call a name i mean you're not you're not like in your brain confusing the elvis presley movie king creole and just thinking that it's something famous <laughs> no okay good i want to because i'm not familiar with anything by a band named king creole I know that they had a song that was briefly popular. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been on SNL. But well, they had a lot of people on SNL. I don't recognize any of those titles there at all. I don't either. Uh, Annie, I'm not your daddy. <laughs> Annie, are you okay? <laughs> are you okay? I'm not your daddy. Ah. Jesus. Yeah, I'm not sure why. Apparently, even uh, our bot doesn't know anything about Kid Creole. All right. Well, looking at them, they. Uh are listed as being the genre is Latin and disco years active 1980 to the present. They recently re released an album in 2011 called I wake up screaming. They've got other albums such as fresh fruit in foreign places, which I don't know why that sounds familiar to me. None of this sounds familiar at all in praise of older women and other crimes. Huh? No, I've gone down a weird rabbit hole. Yeah, we have. I mean, I'm looking at pictures of their concerts, and it looks a lot of fun. It looks, imagine, imagine like Prince, but from, like, uh, New Orleans. Or The Time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, more stay in The Time. With that Zoot Suit kind of thing he's got going on there. Anyway. All right, well, enough of the Kid Creole rabbit hole, I think. Moving on to Sports. On May 24th, in the Stanley Cup Final, the New York Islanders, in their first finals appearance, beat the Philadelphia Flyers 5-4 to in overtime for a four-games-to-two series win. The Saturday afternoon game was the first full American network telecast of an NHL game since Game 5 of the 1975 Stanley Cup Finals, and the last NHL game on American network television until NBC televised the 1990 All-Star Game. Hmm. Man. And lastly, on May 29th, Larry Bird beat out Magic Johnson for NBA Rookie of the Year. That's how long ago 1980 was. Good God. 
That feels like a long time ago now. 40 years ago. Play us off keyboard, Joel. <laughs> we need kid, we need Kid Creole to do a funeral procession for us. <laughs> All right. So back in 1980, Stanley Kubrick said, "Hey, well, probably before this, many years before this." <laughs> so back in 1970, before the novel was actually written, Stanley <laughs> Kubrick started filming this movie. I think it was it was three years in production, so in seventy seven they started. Yeah. Started filming The Shining based off Stephen King's book. Which if you have not heard of it, you really gotta get up on things. It is the story of the Torrance family going out to be the night or the winter watchman for the Overlook Hotel, and then everything goes haywire. I hate to say this, because I know the ant the question. Is this a first viewing for any of us? No, not remotely. Mm, not nope. even close. Same. This is one of my all-time favorite horror films. Same. Yeah. Top 10, for sure. This is the first time I've ever seen it. What? Are you serious? I am dead serious. I've seen snippets of it. I, like, I've seen the Here's Johnny, and I've seen the you know memes of it. All, all the pop culture stuff, yeah. Yeah, but I've never actually sat down wow. and watched it. Huh. This is going to be fun, then. I, I've got a newbie. I like that. Yeah, yeah. this will be... I it got, was the I, same for Sarah. Uh, it was her first time watching it when we watched it. I think we watched it on Valentine's Day, actually. Oh, <laughs> how Nothing romantic. Love. Huh. Uh, like Wendy and Jack. So this is directed by Stanley Kubrick, who did 2001 Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, Eyes Wide Shut, Doctor Strange Love, Lolita, and a bunch of other wide shot experimental. Full Metal Jacket. Oh, full, yeah, Full Metal Jacket. I've seen that. That's crazy pants this is written you know credits to stephen king and stanley kubrick but diane johnson who is also part of this and something called the divorce really are the only two things she helped out with this the writing of this one starring jack nicholson is jack torrance shelly duvall is wendy torrance danny lloyd is danny scatman crothers Talleran. Barry Nelson is Ullman, Philip Stone is Grady, and Joe Turkle as Lloyd the bartender. Some trivia on this one. Because Danny Lloyd was so young. Now, I actually knew this before I started looking it up. Because Danny Lloyd was so young and it was his first job acting, uh, Stanley Kubrick was very protective of him. And during the shooting of the movie, Lloyd was under the impression that he was making a drama, not a horror movie. In fact, when Wendy carries Danny away while shouting at Jack in the lounge, she's actually carrying a dummy so Lloyd would not have to be in the scene. He only realized the truth about this movie several years later when he was shown a very heavily edited version, and he did not see the uncut version of this movie until he was 17, 11 years after he had been in it. That's crazy. And you know what, though? That's kind of nice. I don't want to say, because Stanley Kubrick was, I mean, Kubrick was probably like, you know, if we let him see any of this shit, we could really screw up this kid. You know, could you imagine, you know, we want you to sit in this hallway and we're going to throw two thousands of gallons of blood at you. Just act like you think you would act. Or here's two girls that are just a little bit older than you. They're both dead on the floor. Yeah. Everywhere. And have been just completely 
massacred. But the thing I find interesting about this is that even if you did not know this, you could not have told because no. of the way the way everything was edited. You know, he, they did a good job of making sure that he was separate from all the horror that was going on. Yeah, it actually kind of makes it even that much more brilliant when you think about that. that yeah. He pulled that off without ever letting him on, on, you know, the fact of what he was actually doing. And the kid was pretty good at, for his age, too. Apparently, the talking finger thing was, was actually his idea, was uh, Danny Lloyd's idea. And when they did the tryouts for it, he just started talking with his finger. And Stanley Kubrick was like, that's the kid. Get him. So <laughs> That kid talks with his finger. You're in. Here is some trivia that Josh... Uh, Highlighted for us, a Stanley Yeah, to make sure it was in this, yeah. Yeah, definitely, especially because we just recently did the Aladdin show. Kubrick considered Robert De Niro and Robin Williams for the role of Jack Torrance, but decided against them. Kubrick did not think De Niro would suit the role after watching his performance in Taxi Driver, as he said De Niro was not psychotic enough for the role. He did not think Williams would suit the role after watching his performance in Mork and Mindy, as he said that Robin Williams was too psychotic for the role. You know, I almost, I almost want to go to the alternate universe where Robin Williams was in The Shining. That would have been crazy. I, I don't think Kubrick made a bad call, though, because at that point, trying to rein Robin Williams in might have been a little difficult, and it could have been like Robin Williams stand-up versus Robin Williams in Google Hunting. I'm not sure about the Robert De Niro thing, because after seeing Taxi Driver, I think he, he's capable of it. But Jack made this so much his own that, uh, you know, I, I think he made the right call. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. I do see uh, one of the things that Stephen King complained about with the casting of Jack Nicholson is he started off with, you know, looking a little bit unhinged because that's just Jack Nicholson's natural state. Well, yeah, I mean, there was very little warmth for Jack Torrance in this as compared to his uh, character in the book. Right. And a lot of the decisions that were made almost seem to have been calculated to piss Stephen King off. Hmm. Yeah. They, they like randomly changed the color of the car and then used a car of the correct color in a different scene. So it wasn't like they didn't have one. <laughs> huh? Huh? That's interesting. Yeah. King notoriously hated this. Yeah. So we're like, hey, Cooper, good job with Danny. And then it's like, oh, well, can't win them all, I guess. You like Danny? I'm going to switch the cars on you. How do you like that, Steven? <laughs> yeah, the, the this film and the book are very different. But let's get through the trivia before we delve too deep into that. Yeah. So uh, Jack Nich Nicholson and Shelley Duvall have expressed open resentment against the reception of this film, feeling that critics and audiences credited Stanley Kubrick solely for the film's success without considering the efforts of the actor's crew or the strength of Stephen King's book. Nicholson and Duvall have said that the film was one of the hardest of their careers. In fact, Nicholson considers Duvall's performance the most difficult role he's ever seen an actress take on. Duvall also considers her performance the hardest of her life and has commented she would never trade it in. But she doesn't want to do it again. Yeah, Kubrick pushed her to some extremes, kind of like Hitchcock used to do with his actresses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where he psychologically tortured her to get that performance out of her. Yeah. He kind of messed up. He, he, he brilliant filmmaker, but kind of a dickhole. Mm -hmm. uh, for the classic scene when Jack breaks down the bathroom door, the props department built a door that could be easily broken apart. However, Jack Nicholson has once worked as a volunteer fire marshal and destroyed the door far too easily. 
props department were then forced to build a stronger door. <laughs> and then following that up, according to Shelley Duvall, the infamous Here's Johnny scene took three days to film and used 60 doors. And Jack Nicholson looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger by the end. I know his forearms had to have been huge by that point. Jack Nicholson actually suggested Scatman Crothers for the film. Crothers had a tough time on this movie with Stanley Kubrick making him do over 100 takes for just one scene. Crothers' next film was Bronco Billy, directed by Clint Eastwood, who was famous for generally only going with one take. Crothers broke down in tears of gratitude on his first scene in the film, uh, Bronco Billy, because he realized he wouldn't have to do endless take and take and take again and again and again. I suppose if you didn't know who Stanley Kubrick was, if you didn't realize what the man's brain was wired to do, you probably would have that reaction. But, you know, anytime you get somebody that's a genius in any format of whatever creative outlet they have or sport or whatever, they're always a little sideways. Yeah, look at Pat. <laughs> I mean, he's a talent. But it, do- it doesn't give you license to abuse people. We're just trying to figure out what the hell you're talented in. It's got to be something. We're going to find it someday. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick originally wanted Slim Pickens to play the part of Halloran, but Pickens wanted nothing to do with Kubrick. Because he's like, I worked with him on Dr. Strangelove. I ain't doing that again. <laughs> right. That would be uh, would have been really strange because it would have been the first time Hollywood did the reverse of what they frequently do with Stephen King's books to film adaptations. King has been criticized for, in a lot of his works, having black characters who are magical in some way. It's like a kind of a lazy trope. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, is Hollywood has done this to King stuff, taking characters who are magical and like even if they were white in the books, making them black characters to make the problem worse. So this would have been like the lone exception where Hollywood would have actually race swapped the other way, undoing the trope. Huh? Yeah. Cause Dick Halloran is uh, very important in both his role in it and uh, the shining. He's, he's a black guy. And I want to throw in one other fun Kubrick fact. If you guys are not familiar with his films on the whole, if you go back and watch a Kubrick film, doesn't matter which one, his bathrooms are always immaculate. That's one of his uh, signature things. There's a lot of signature Kubricks in this movie. There's a lot of like the mirror image scenes and mirrors. And I mean, I, I have questions. <laughs> I, I got, I mean, this is, like I said, this is the first time I've seen this. In its entirety, it's not been just like a meme or a gif or something. And well, there's one scene that gives everyone questions: the dog, the, the dog bear man, dog bear pig man giving the blowjob to the guy in the uh, tux. Yeah, who apparently was the previous owner of the hotel. I've heard that's that's what people believe. He was actually a much larger character in actually both books, Doctor Sleep and Shining, but he barely it's actually hard to tell who he was supposed to be in the shining because his signature line is the old guy at the end lovely party isn't it Mm. oh that's the same guy that was the original owner of the hotel whether he's supposed to be the guy getting blown by the guy in the costume which would also make sense because he had a lover that uh, he kept on a dog collar so it's almost like the role split between two different spirits in this film. So I, st- I watched this movie 
and my first instinct was Jack is using this place as an excuse to kill his family. I was, I was, I mean, my first instinct on, on Jack, especially in the car ride with the whole conversation about cannibalism, Jack does not like his son and wife at all. And that's what, that, what, what Josh and I were alluding to earlier is in the book, he's much more affectionate and loving towards his family. Whereas the casting of Jack Nicholson made him seem much more menacing from the get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's an alcoholic who's trying to use this to get his life back together. Yeah. He broke his kid's arm when he was drunk. He stopped drinking and was trying to get a, reconnect with his family. And you don't really see that. Like he's pretty much a jackass from the beginning in the film. Yeah. Then I was, I was on the, the thing of you're going mad because you're stuck in this place by yourself the the solitude madness my final thought on jack torrance okay this is my theory jack torrance has the shining but he's one of those that doesn't know it and because he's in a place where things have happened he's seeing all this because he's got the shining and he's going crazy because of it and the reason i think he has the shining is because when he was locked in the cat the uh, with all the food, I forgot what the dry storage. Yeah, yeah, when he was locked in dry storage, he the door unlocked for him, and I think he used the shining to unlock the door, and he went nuts because he had, up until this point he did not know he had the shining, and when he went to the Indian burial ground, key, you know, murder house, it released it on him, and he went crazy, and that's my theory for for him. I don't know if it's right because I looked up I looked up the shining theories and went down a freaking rabbit hole. Suddenly we're talking <laughs> about moon landings. What the hell? Well, and you almost have to separate it from the book because in the books, it's pretty much canon that he has a little taste of the shining. But the reason why all of the evil that lives at the Overlook is able to be so powerful is because his kid's there and his kid is unusually powerful with the shining. Okay. Uh, but that's the thing is it's not to say your theory is wrong because this is so different from the book in so many ways. It still hits on some of the same themes of addiction and abuse and, of course, mental health. But Addiction, like, abuse, the Holocaust, the treatment of the American Indian, the, uh, Stanley Kubrick's apology for faking the moon landings. What? Yeah. There's a, I mean. There's a whole conspiracy theory about, you know, all kinds of things in this that. Like you said, him him saying that he faked the moon landing, and I think that's that's a bunch of bunch of bullshit. He didn't. <laughs> oh well, I mean, and some of the other ones. I mean, can I looked up where was there was like conspiracy theories? Like one of them was like this is about CIA mind control because there was a poster on the back about Monarch Project Monarch, and it's about the Minotaur, and it it's I, I think it's 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 just anything involving Kubrick is going to have this kind of like ridiculousness to it. But when you're as meticulous as he is, people take it a little bit to the extreme. And I think there's no such thing as a coincidence ever. Like they, they, they want to say like, even if like one tile is out of place, it was out of place for a reason. Yeah. Well, and he was known for that. So, I mean, it's, it's possible. Yeah, not, but, not to that but, extreme. Th- things will be attributed that you know don't mean anything. There, there, a lot of meanings will be attributed to things that don't have meaning because if you're if you're known for hiding meaning in things, people are going to look for meaning in everything. Right. 
And it could just be a lazy uh, continuity person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, I mean, with the continuity, I mean, there's a couple things that I had seen happen, like with uh, one of the scenes inside the room where he's typing, where the chair in the background disappears and it comes back and that sort of thing. It, I was watching a couple of videos and some people made commentary about, oh, the chair disappears and this is what this means. And then I watched the cinema sins, everything wrong with. And one of them and one of them was. The chair disappears and reappears in this, and I think it's because there were so many takes on this one scene. The continuity guy wasn't able to replace the chair after Jack Nicholson went berserk and destroyed it after having to do in the 75th take of the one scene. It's entirely possible. <laughs> I was glued to this movie. Jack Nicholson, I love Jack Nicholson, probably the best movie I've ever seen him in. He is a bona fide presence in this movie. Yeah. For sure. And the setting itself, like the outlook has to be this character of it in and of itself. And it really was. Mm-hmm. Even though the, the, the story was written at the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, which I've been to on several occasions, they couldn't use that location because it, it wouldn't work for this. It's, it's not wide open enough. But whoever did the location scouting found just an amazing thing. Like you guys were saying, it's, it's a character in and of itself. Yeah. The majority of it was actually set work. I mean, it, the exterior shots were, you know, were a hotel in Montana and the majority of the in- interior shots were all sets. Yeah. And I mean, there were some questions I had with, con- I mean, come on con- some of the continuity, like when they're looking at the hotel from the outside, Oh my God, it's such a gorgeous hotel. Where's the maze. Right. Yeah. That's one of the big goofs is you don't see the maze in the, in the overhead shots. And but you know what? Fine, that works. I can buy it. I mean, fine. The maze just wasn't visible or whatever. I think probably my favorite scene in this with just Jack Nicholson had to been the conversation with him in the gold room. Both times when he goes into the gold room, he's talking to uh, Lloyd, the bartender. Yeah, they rehearsed that scene like a dozen times before they filmed it. Those you know, the two actors. I want to know what rabbit hole Josh was headed down. Well, this this movie, I struggled with this movie for years. Uh, I didn't like it for a whole lot of years because uh, I read The Shining pretty early on. I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I've read most of his books, now up to like 45 or something of his uh, published works. This was one that I read in one sitting. And it's in oh. my top five. Wow. Yeah, this is a very good book. I've this is I've I've read I, I I think six of his books. This is one of them. So having sat down and uh, this this book I've read multiple times before I saw the movie. First time I saw the movie, I was pissed. As an adult, I can separate them. I can uh, appreciate it on its own merits, and I've come around to loving it. But if there are still a few things that bothered me. Like they, they make a pretty big deal about Dick Halloran fighting to come back and he shows up and just takes an ax in the chest immediately. It's always bothered me. Not what happened in the book. Right. And it just seemed like such a disservice to his character to, for him to put all this effort into coming in, you know, coming back to try to save the day and just immediately get cut down. I understand they did it for the shock factor, but it would, like I said, it was a kind of a disservice to. Right. His only narrative function was to deliver a fresh ATV. Yeah. And and not even reading the books. That part is always one of my biggest gripes with the film. And I don't have many. 
I had a problem with it because apparently this guy is like super psychic and he didn't see it coming. It's a goofy change uh, from the books. And uh, yeah, it's definitely it's cheap shock. Yeah, it doesn't add anything narratively. And it's a disservice to it. Like I said, a disservice to a great character. I will say that Halloran's apartment house, beach house, whatever. <laughs> pretty sweet. <laughs> He's a great character. If you guys have not read it, but only experienced it through the films, he's responsible for saving uh, Mike Hanlon and his dad. Oh, in, in '58. I mean, he yeah, he doesn't come to the Overlook until like late '70s. But yeah, he's he's a character in it as well, very minor character. So, what about scenes like if you you three have seen this multiple times? If you were to say one scene epitomizes this movie, what would it be? epitomizes it or i mean like if somebody says the shining what pops into your head first um i'm probably thinking of danny uh riding his trike through the hallways Ooh, yeah that's a good one i would say for me it would be the the scene that impacted me most when i was young like in my early viewings of this movie was jack torrance in room 237 when the the, the naked woman comes up to him oh. and turns into the witch Nope, nope. I, okay. I had question about that also. So he goes in there, he sees a naked woman, she turns into the the don't stay in the bath too long woman. He goes back and then says, I think think he's lying. Don't you think the mom, don't you think that she would be like, well, obviously she's somewhere else in the hotel. She did not stick around in that room where she tried to strangle him. She's running around somewhere else. When I, I sometimes I got so mad at Wendy for stuff that she went along with. Yeah, she was much more passive in this movie than she was in the book as well. Okay, so in so I'm gonna have to read the book because basically what this comes down to is because I'm not and I also could not stop hearing olive oil every single time she talked. <laughs> in in the book, she's a former cheerleader who's like a really strong woman and this is the first time she's ever faced anything any kind of adversity in her life. Being married to Jack Torrance and everything and blah 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 and you're getting she's a much the, more she's a much more interesting character in the book. You're getting it through Kubrick's lens, I think is what what they're saying, the character. Would you agree with that, Josh? Oh, for sure. I mean, she definitely was dominated by Jack's rage. But once again, his rages were connected uh, explicitly to his alcoholism and like all the horrible stuff, all the darkness in the hotel fed on the addictions that were eating away at him. And like every little bit of willpower he had that was keeping him away from the bottle just evaporates along with his mind and all the rage comes back. Well, I pretty much think that him drinking the alcohol when Lloyd serves him is pretty much like him. His it symbolizes him giving up his willpower to the hotel. One hundred percent. Yeah, especially where the last the last thing he says before, I would give my soul for a glass a glass of beer. Yep. And they you know, there's Lloyd. <laughs> yeah. So my my again in my theories, Lloyd is Satan. You know, Lloyd is the Satan or the evil or is the evil of the house. That's him, like I said, him, like you said, giving up, just saying, I'm in it, I'm all in or whatever. But that was like the turning point of any uh, redemption. He he had passed his redemption arc at that point. To circle back around, as far as the film goes, for me, had not having read the book, the thing that always gets me is 
just that opening sequence with Wendy Williams soundtrack and the, you know, the sweeping cameras as you see this kind of vast nothing and it's just completely calm and they're driving up to the overlook and it's just like this kind of just kind of like the calm before the storm. And then everything after that just is just brilliantly done. The set pieces, the, the, the direction, the acting, the script, the everything. And there's a great, well, I won't say great. There's a documentary <laughs> called room 237 by Rodney Asher, who did, uh, the nightmare. Okay. I I've seen it and it's kind of a deep dive into various interpretations and kind of an exploration of the film. I found it to be incredibly dull, but if you guys want to see something that kind of mm. uh, takes a dive into it, that isn't, you know, something to read it is. I mean, it is an interesting watch at least once. Which, what you were talking about the, about the music is and one of the, one of the videos I watched commented that every moment in this movie was made to make the viewer feel uncomfortable. Like it, and it culminated in the, in the maze at the very end. The, and especially in the very, very opening where you had that kind of like weird choir in the back going, oh, and it keeps you like mildly freaking out through the whole movie unless the, the heartbeat's going on. How uncomfortable was that scene in the bathroom between Grady and, and Jack? You've always been the caretaker. And he's, <laughs> he's like, no, no. <laughs> I, you're the guy that chopped up your family. He's like, yeah, and he's like, no. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, then were... what Grady says is sort of paid off at the end where he's in the photograph from the past right. with the rest of them. So that and was so cool. many freaking theories on that one, too. Is he a spirit that just got reincarnated? Is he actually just a ghost that's reliving what happened? Is Did the, did the hotel absorb him? Laura felt that he was he was reincarnated. I've never had a personal theory on it. I've just always kind of accepted it as the end of the film. But I don't know if the book expands on that or if it's even in the book. Nope, not at all. Not, not in my, the book whatsoever. My theory is is he's become is is follows along with a couple of the other things I saw where he has become part of the history of the hotel and now is like almost stuck in that cyclical reliving of of this over and over again. Well, I mean, as many of the ghosts in the overlook, you know, kind of point to, it's like there is no element of time. They're all just They've they've always just you know, once you're a ghost of the overlook you're just always you've just always been there, mm. yeah. And it couldn't possibly be in the ending of the book because in the ending of the book the overlook is destroyed. Yeah, the yeah. boiler the boiler blows up. Spoiler alert! Now something else I want to toss in here real quick. Joel, you mentioned her name, Wendy Carlos, mm-hmm. as a composer. She was also the composer for Tron, the original Tron in 1982, which I thought was kind of weird. Yeah, she was a a big deal at this point um, in demand, as they say. Yeah, she was in. She also did uh, Clockwork Orange and was the arranger in Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, she was trans or had gone through the change. Yeah, she was transitioning between uh, Barry Lyndon and this movie, I believe. <laughs> So the the ending. Shut up, Patrick. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Like the the one the one credit was she's credited as male and the other one's credited as a woman. Yeah, because she was Wendy Carlos. I'm not uh, joking. That's that's the true thing. Here I'm looking it up now because I'm like 
I'm pretty sure she... This is like one of my favorite movies. I know a lot of stupid shit about this movie. Mike sounded like you had a question. Did Walter, I? Walter, Wendy, Walter, I Carlos. Yeah, I don't it. even know where we're going anymore. You were talking about the ending. Yeah. What, what, are, what are your guys' theories on the end? Like, Josh, I'm particularly interested in yours because I know you're a big Stephen King fan. You've read the books. You've watched the movies. Compared to the book, to the movie, what do you, what do you think happened to Jack Torrance at the end of the movie? I, I like the idea, if, if we're completely discounting the books, that the hotel absorbed him and almost like retroactively wrote him into its past. Like, it's sort of a timeless place, and once he was uh, consumed by the hotel, he had always been there. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes no sense to the ghost that he has never been the caretaker, because as, as, as soon as it had its hooks in him, he'd always just been there. Yeah, and that probably happened the instant he took that drink. Yep. And it kind of harkens back to another show we did with the house on, on Haunted Hill, or the Haunting of Hill House. Um, Hill, Hill House House. The Hill House <laughs> House House, Hill Hell, Hill, Hell, Hell, I don't know. Haunt, haunt, haunt. Where, you know, people die and then they're just kind of... There. There. And it kind of, you know, there's there's some theories about spirits and things like that, that when you die, you're kind of, like I said, caught in a loop or you're stuck in that particular... You know, they joke about, you know, be careful what you're wearing when you go out, because when you die, that's what you're going to wear as a ghost for the rest of eternity. So I'm wearing nothing but sweatpants for the rest of my life. <laughs> I'm going to be comfy. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like I said, every time I've watched it, I've never thought about it too much. I'm just like, that's the end. All right. Hmm. Once again, fantastic film. Loved it. See, I find that interesting that you just accepted it without thinking anything deeper into it, because you seem to be the one that would be like, wait a second. I don't know. I think you would dig. I, I expected you to dig more into it. Nope. I'm never done any sort of deep dive on it. As far as I was concerned, he just kind of became part of the hotel or was always there. Or it was just huh. a weird thing that happened. I don't know. Never thought about it too much. One, one more scene as, as a person who has just seen it, another scene that really affected me, just absorbed me in watching it was the scene on the stairs where Jack is, you know, with the whole, I'm not going to hurt, hurt you. I'm just going to bash your fucking head in that whole thing. Holy cow. He was full on freaking frightening in that. And he just flipped that switch. Yeah. That's a classic sequence. Wow. I mean, just good stuff all around. I mean, this, this, and you know, then you start going on YouTube and looking at the, you know, people talking about it. What was your initial reaction to when she started going through the manuscript and seeing what he had been typing? Oh, right. Or now, was that see, spoiled by the Simpsons? No, I'm, and, and that, yeah, I mean, I knew that was going to happen. Yeah. I initial my initial thought was, all right, why? I almost wanted her to go to the bottom of the pile and be like, all right, let's kind of see where did this happen? You know, flip, 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 <laughs> story, 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 all jack, 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 jack. All right. Oh, it's right about here where he went. <laughs> Bad shit. I, I mean, I knew it was going to happen. I think it was very well played. You know, I think the looking from her eyes for s- the personality that she was in this movie, where she was subservient, where she was almost f- was fearful of him and did not, you know, after that whole scene of him, you, you're breaking my concentration scene. I think, she, you know, she just left it alone and she had gone through this entire time thinking that he was writing a story. And when she saw I mean, that's at least a ream and a half of paper. 
that was sitting there. That's a lot of writing off a typewriter. And to go there and to see nothing but the same thing over and over and over and over again, I mean, kind of probably broke her a little too. Just to see concrete proof that he's completely snapped. Yeah. Somebody uh, made a book. And it's it's the actual <laughs> book that he was writing, and all it is is all work and no play makes. But it's written out like in a book form. Yeah, yeah. Kubrick's secretary spent like a month typing all that out by hand on a typewriter. But oh, you can God. buy a copy of the book, like an actual book with the same title, whatever the title of the book was hmm. uh, that he was huh. writing. I was going to ask though for the two readers of the novel something that I've always wondered, and I've never again taken a deep dive on it because I just enjoy the film for what it is. How long were they there before the events actually took place that resulted in the final sequence before they left the hotel? How, I mean, was it a month? Was it two, a couple of weeks? Did it happen over like just a few days? Or is that ever really specific? Yeah, no, it clearly says like, you know, a month has passed and this happened. And then, you know, I think it was, I think it was around two and a half months when everything fully started, started. going crazy. Yeah. yeah, you didn't notice because, like, every time a date or a time or something showed up on the screen, it was like, bum, bum, March. <laughs> <laughs> One month. <laughs> 8.15. That, that first scene when she's uh, wheeling the breakfast to him in bed, it, you know, it, there was a, a card that clearly said one month. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering about the book. Yeah, it was pretty similar, if I remember right. It's, it's actually been a while since I've read the book, even though I've read it two or three times now. I, yeah, I only read it once in high school, so I mean, I'm not entirely 100% on the... But if I recall, the timeline would have been similar in terms of it being like six weeks-ish before things really start to go sideways. Off the rails, as it were. Yeah, like the first month was pretty pretty uneventful, other than like the, the hedge creatures moving around. Yeah, mostly when no one's looking. Yeah, hmm. I've I've heard about that because I bought the book after my first visit to to the Stanley, and being a fan of the film, I was like, oh, I'm going to read the book finally. It's still sitting downstairs. I haven't touched it. Uh, but that's one of the things that I heard from people I've read the book was that the living hedge maze or the the whatever the topiaries coming to life was something that they clearly left out of it, and and for good reason because it wouldn't have worked very well. Well, they did it in the in the 1997 version, and it looked ridiculous. It's as I would expect it to. I mean, even nowadays, it would be. It's something that in a book you can do, but even with CGI having topiaries come to life, unless it's like a kids' movie, it would be difficult to pull off successfully. It's I think. Difficult to make it menacing. Yeah, you're like, oh, look at that dinosaur! Rawr! Wrestle, <laughs> wrestle, but yeah, uh, let's take a moment and talk about the 97 version before we go to break. Um, yeah, because you and I have seen it. Yeah. I, I visited the location. <laughs> I watched it the very first time uh, it, it aired in 97 and uh, tried to watch it again for the show. And just I couldn't I couldn't get past like the first 20 minutes. I was like, no, I'm just not going to do this to myself. Is again. It really that bad? It's not great. Well, yeah, it's closer to King's story, but it's just poorly shot, mostly poorly acted. Yeah, I mean, Rebecca De Mornay is the best thing about it. And Stephen Weber trying to play anything but comedy is, I mean, he's just not, he's not up to snuff on it. He's just not a good actor. Um, mm-hmm. Him trying to play rage is, is comical almost. I mean, it it just, it's far from menacing for sure. Uh, the dialogue is much more true to the book, but 
some of the dialogue is so ridiculous on paper it doesn't translate well to real life like you know constantly calling him pup when you're angered you know it just sounds ridiculous over and over again you know, when you hear it and my biggest gripe besides first of all the the tony is just a ridiculous character in the it, when you when you write when you take him directly from the page and put him on screen it's a ridiculous character it's a floating futuristic version of himself that i mean it's just that just i mean i don't know but my biggest gripe is Cortland mead the kid who played danny torrance is just a horrible horrible actor and he's just so wooden his delivery is so awful and it takes me out of of the of the any scene that he's in is just so awful from my understanding just from what i read when i was there i haven't uh, that king was a lot more involved in this version though wasn't he mm-hmm. yeah this was this was the version he he wanted he wrote he 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 would this was his baby he was all like i'm going to show you guys what the shining should have been and everybody's like well we're really glad it wasn't this <laughs> <laughs> what about you josh since you yeah, I watched it the first time, and uh, yeah, I remember at the time I was just like, "Well, this is closer to the book, but it's just not very good." Yeah, I was like, "Why is the guy from Wings being such a dick?" <laughs> I mean, just really, really, I'm honestly bad casting. Stephen Weber and Cortland Mead, the two male leads, are just horrible choices. What was Halloran? Was it whoever played that? Was he acceptable? I don't even remember him. I, I just, yeah, same. I mean, he's. I, I didn't even get that far in, in trying to rewatch it this time. I just, but I don't remember him from the first viewing, so that tells you something. Because it was on my list of things to try to do. Because I, I watched The Shining when uh, Doctor Sleep was in the theater still. Because Laura and I were going to go see it. Ended up not being able to go, and then I bought Doctor Sleep and it came out a couple weeks ago, and watched it. So. I, my thought was I'd go back and watch this, the 97 one, because I was curious how terrible it was. And I'm kind of glad now that I didn't. Um, Halloran was played by Melvin Van Peoples. Oof. Mario's brother? No, his dad. Dad, yeah. Oh. I didn't even remember that. Yeah, I'd forgotten as well. That doesn't make it much better. I looked it up because I was curious, and that I was legitimately not expecting that. Huh. I'm a little surprised, actually. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've exhausted about all I have to say about the original. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah. I think that's, Van Peebles is a silly name. Stephen King was Gage Creed in that? Hmm. A lot of names in it. Mm-hmm. Four directors and writers, and... Wow. That's that's a shame. Good pedigree. Anyway. Oh. I can't recommend not watching it more. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, with that... means that, I'll be watching it this weekend. As you do. We are going to take a break, and we come back, we're going to talk about Dr. Sleep. The sequel. Dr. Acula. Not not the sequel to Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Thing, which is Dr. Sleep. The sequel to The Thing? Yeah, not The Thing. Which was just called The Thing? No, it, uh, the... Oh. Does anyone else, does anyone else smell toast? <laughs> So, I'm not sure, was it 2009 that Dr. Sleep came out? 19, 2019? No, 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 the book. The book. Oh, oh. 2013. 2013. 2013. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fairly new book. 
Yeah. So uh, apparently Stephen King got the idea to, well, not even got the idea to write the book, but got tweaked to actually finish it by a fan who asked him intensely at one of the book signings, hey, whatever happened to Danny? You know, that's kind of like the big question because the kid went through some shit. So he wrote Dr. Sleep, which eventually became a movie in 2019 directed by a one Mike Flanagan known for outside of Dr. Sleep, Gerald's Game, Hush, uh, The Haunting of Hill House, and the upcoming 2021 Halloran. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And the favorite of the show. We seem to yeah, so. have enjoyed Mike Flanagan's where I'm a fan, but mm-hmm. yeah, so far so good. And I love any horror film that takes the time to talk about the aspects of what happens after all the insanity. Mm -hmm. And they had a really tough needle to thread with this one because there are consequences to the original film being so different from the original book. And obviously the sequel book followed the original book. So they had to make something that it would have confused people if they just remade the book as a movie. And they had to sell King on the idea, hey, we're going to make a sequel to the film, which you hate, but everyone else loves, but also be true to the spirit of your novel. He's like, I've heard that before. (laughs) Spoiler alert, I think they were fairly successful at meeting both of those very difficult to do at the same time goals. And that was something I was going to ask about once we got into it, but. Yeah, since we're here, I'm I'm glad you brought it up because I was curious about it. King's been hitting batting a thousand lately. It's it's the, definitely the King's uh, golden age or second golden age. Although this time, I think he's a lot happier with the product. Yeah, well, let's get in, before we go any deeper. Yeah. Let's get into the cast. Yeah, so uh, Danny Torrance or Dan Torrance, as he's known in this one, Ewan McGregor plays him. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat. Kylie Curran as Abra Stone, Cliff Curtis as Billy Freeman, uh, Zahn McLaren as Crow Daddy. They, they, had the, they had some great names for the characters in this one. So Emily Allen Lind as Snakebite Andy, Selena Andews as Apron Annie, uh, Robert Longstreet as Barry the Chunk, Grandpa Flick is Carol Strucken. Saying that, Rachel? I know you'll know if anybody. Strucken? Strucken? Okay. Strucken? Strucken? Yeah, Striken or Striken. Yeah, you may know him as Lurch from the Adams Family movies. Or he was in uh, Gerald's Game. Yeah, and also in uh, Men in Black. I mean, as fuck. At the Giant in Twin Peaks. Yep. 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 Too. Uh, Catherine Parker is Silent Sari. James Flanagan is Diesel Young. Matt Clark is Short Eddie. A lot of these names. Zachary Momoth, David Stone, Jacqueline Donahue, Lucy Stone. Carl Lumbly is a really good Dick Halloran. Yeah, of all the uh, lookalikes, he he probably looked the most like the original. And sounded a lot like him, too. Mm-hmm. He did a good job of pulling off the voice. And Henry Thomas as the bartender, who I think did a great job after coming off of Haunting of Hill House. I was so nervous when that scene came up and Laura and I were watching it. And until he was in the bathroom, I was like, who did they get to play the Jack Nicholson character? And then I was like, holy shit, that's Henry Thomas. She's like, who? And I'm like, you know, from Haunting of Hill House, E.T. She's like, E.T.? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. Bruce Greenwood is Dr. John. Sally Hooks is Miss Massey. Alex Asso is Wendy Torrance. And Roger Dale Floyd is Young Danny. I'm really glad that they didn't attempt to do like a deep fake on Wendy Torrance and the bartender and all that. 
you know, then just like superimpose Jack's face on him. They looked enough like the uh, originals that you weren't like fooled thinking it was uh, in most cases. Though I will say, uh, Alex Esso, when they redid her scene, the Where's Johnny scene, Mm -hmm. it was the only time where for a split second I thought they used archive footage. She had the expression down, everything. Yeah, it was really good. And, And like you said, I wasn't exactly, I mean, Henry Thomas as Jack, he, he did his damnedest and he did a great job. I think I'm, I'm just like I said, it's one of the things I'm really grateful for is they didn't fall back on, oh, well, we'll just CGI him in, you know, that sort of thing. They actually got characters like they could have just as easily done. There's enough Scatman Crothers footage out there that they could have put him in there. But Carl Lumbly did a great job of it. You know, I think Alex also did a great job of it. And I appreciate the fact that they didn't fall back on digital on that one. So uh, some trivia. Cameo, Danny Lloyd, who played the character Danny Torrance in The Shining, makes a cameo in this movie at the baseball game and is listed in the credits as Spectator. Hmm. Sitting, sitting in the stand. I didn't catch that. Most of the elements from The Shining were recreated with duplicate sets and look-like actors, though three shots were reused. The aerial shot of the water and the island and the two shots after it of the car driving on the mountain road. The shots were degrained, recolored as day for night, and then added snow digitally. Oh, I was wondering about that because when they showed that sequence and I'm like, how did they get the water so calm? I'm like, it looks exactly like Kubrick's original footage. Mm-hmm. That makes so much more sense. And that's when the did you also notice there was no real soundtrack to the to the movie until that scene kicked in and then all that oh, started up right away. Huh? Wow. Yeah. Mike Flanagan recreated the sets of the Overlook Hotel from blueprints that he had acquired from Stanley Kubrick's estate. So they were pretty much spot on for the original. Ewan McGregor, Dan Stevens, Chris Evans, Matt Smith, what? And Jeremy Renner were all considered to have met with the director for the lead role, and McGregor ended up being cast with Stephen King's Blessing. Different movie for every one of those guys. I like Dan Stevens. I like Chris Evans. Of course, Matt Smith and Jeremy Renner, but I... Yeah, Ewan was, well, he's amazing anyway. I I can't see, I mean, I, the Matt Smith thing throws me. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of an odd choice. Yeah. The poster for Joe Collins Live outside the movie theater when Andy is leaving, character from the Dark Tower series, Joe Collins, a.k.a. Dandello, creature like the true knot, an emotional vampire, but feeds on laughter instead of fear. Huh. Is there a book about him or something or what? Oh, he's in the Dark Tower. He's in Dark Tower, yeah. Um, There's our multiple Dark Tower references in the film. The bus line that Danny and Abra take is called Tet. The baseball player's number is 19, which recurs over and over again in the books. And the place where the one, uh, the new True Knots victims is killed is Lemerick Industries. And Dick Halloran refers to Ka when talking with Danny about the karmic debts, how Ka moves in a circle. Keeps it in the Kingverse? What is it? What's the phrase of it? Kingverse? Stevenverse? Castle Rock Universe? I don't know. No, don't they just, I don't think they have a cute name for it. Just all yeah. of his novels are in the same Universe. reality. Kingsland. Yeah. More multiverse. Oh, Kingsland. I like that. There you go. Done. Peter nice. Chris wins again. Cujoville. No, Pat. Oh. No one wants to go to Cujoville. 
<laughs> they have a great dog show there. I want to go to Tiny Town. Carry Town. Yeah. No. The annual pig festival. Yikes. So I don't know what I was expecting in this one because I watched this almost immediately after finishing this this The Shining. It, Danny was just about as effed up as I was expecting him to be. <laughs> I was a bit apprehensive. The only reason I had some high hopes still uh, outside of, you know, all the, the reviews and things that had come out long before I'd seen it was that King was on board and that almost everything I've seen from King in the last five to ten years has been excellent. And so, I, you know, and I already knew Mike Flanagan to be a, a solid director. So I, I had pretty high hopes and, and I, I spoiler alert, I think it paid off. Yeah, I think he has learned a lot in the last two decades about filmmaking since he made the 97 version. For sure. And this this is a fairly divisive title because I think uh, there were a lot of people who are huge fans of the book. And it's uh, in a lot of places, pretty massive departure. I uh, read the book over the last two days, finished it actually this afternoon. Hmm. So what would you say would be the biggest departure? I don't say discrepancy? Departure? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the hotel was blown up in the end of the first book. So it's obviously not there at the end of the second one. There you that, go. That's, that's pretty big. That's a so thing. How do they handle it then in Dr. Sleep then, since that's such a huge part of the film? Confrontation still happened where the Overlook was, but that was sort of the base for the True Knot. Also, there's a hell of a lot more True Knot in the book than there are. There's like six of them or eight of them in the movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more of them in the book. A little bit more le- leaning toward uh, Nightbreed on that one. And they kind of alluded to it in the movie where she said, oh, there's a lot more, you know. Mm. Yeah, definitely in the book, they used to number in the hundreds, and they're down to about 40 by the time the book starts, instead of like eight. Hmm. And uh, they aren't like all but one wiped out before the climax of the movie. Yeah, they're going into the stronghold, and there's still a lot of them at the end. I don't want to do too many spoilers, because it's my hope. It's kind of hard to expect people to have read the book, even though it's been out for a few years. And if you enjoyed the first book and you like these two movies, uh, I like the movie, but the book's better. It's worth a read. Hmm. How would you put the book as compared to the original Shining? I think it is a worthy successor. Okay. A lot of people complain a little bit that the True Knot are sort of weak adversaries, and I don't know that I agree with that. I I do think that they're kind of interesting because aside, there's a moment in both the book and the film where you kind of turn on the True Knot because, like, you know that they're kind of bad guys, but until you actually see them torture a child, it's like they've got this charisma. They've got their way of life, and they're vampires, but they... They eat people. They, people are food. Mm. And, and they're actually a little bit more charismatic and less outwardly monstrous than a typical Stephen King villain. And I wouldn't say they're completely sympathetic, but like any sympathy you have for them goes away when they torture and kill the baseball kid. Which they did not. I mean, I've seen a lot of films and one of the big horror Bible kind of no-nos is you don't show violence towards children Typically, now there are films that do that, but this was handled in such a way that even though the violence wasn't explicit, it also wasn't pulling any punches. And it was it was a little hard to watch at times at how for sure visceral it was. Mm-hmm. But it, it, like you were saying, it, it really kind of sealed the point that okay, what are you trading for 
a, a longer life, not eternal life, as she said, but an extension of life. What are you giving up to become somebody who can live for millennium? You know, Ugh, it was rough. And I think you need that, especially with the charisma and outward beauty of uh, both the character and the actress who plays Rose the Hat. Like, she's easy to like until that moment. Mm-hmm. And even after that, she's so charismatic that you still like watching her on the, on the screen. And, and she's been, I've seen some lists where she's being touted as, you know, one of the more memorable villains of the past 10, 20 years. Which is credit to King and credit to Rebecca Ferguson. I don't know if Pat has nothing to say or if he's been muted this whole time. No, I'm just listening to you guys. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Every once in a while. Yeah, I didn't want to interrupt anybody. I mean, it's a talky show, Pat. I understand that, but you guys are filling up the time. I didn't feel the need to interrupt. <laughs> Pat's in the back making shadow puppets. He'll love, he'll love this. Everybody loves shadow puppets. Especially on podcasts. Oh, that's an idea for an episode. Can I just say I love Cliff Curtis? And every time I see him on screen, I, I just enjoy his work. He created such a, a likable character in this that... Oh, yeah, the scene when she... Yeah. Oh, <sighs> yeah. Such a, as soon as it happens, she's just like, no! <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I like what they did with that. Billy is big in the book, but like he absorbed the part of a few other characters and I just liked the way they handled him. He looked like an old school AA guy, just the way he was playing the character. Yep. Like I believed him being from that world. And between the baseball player and Billy, the stakes were raised so that when the ending happened, there was something, you know, you knew that there was more you could lose. It wasn't just kind of a, okay, well, the good guys are going to win. You know, there was that potential that maybe they won't. Trying to be somewhat cryptic. Are we calling spoilers? I always I mean, for the film, the film, we kind of have to, like, people know what they're getting into at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying not to spoil everything for the book for not only our listeners, but you guys. But on the film, I think if we're going to delve into it, let's just delve into it. Yeah, I'm not going to remember any of this, so we're okay. I felt like what happened to Dan at the end was kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Transmitted? Trans? Telegraphed? Telegraphed, yeah, from the beginning. I mean, even before I saw it, I was kind of predicting where the story was going to go. Because, I mean, you have to have a sacrifice to, you know, save the day and, and, you know, have somebody carry on for you that's potentially stronger than you are. Well, the second... He fights his fate and then finally accepts it. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the trope that you know what's going to happen by the time the movie's done. Mm. Well, and yeah, he's not only against the last member of the Trinod, he's also finally closing the doors on the Overlook. Yeah. Like, for good. For me, the second they started talking about the boxes, I was like, that's it. Whatever the villain, I mean, before I even knew what the villain was, I mean, I kind of did from the opening scene with uh, Rose the Hat. But the second they talked about the boxes, I was like, that's yeah. it. That's the MacGuffin on how they're going to they're going to yep, they're, they're going to open up all the boxes and release them. To, yep. Yeah. Either someone's um, going in the box, which they kind of did. But at the same time, they what's in the box. What's in the box? Yeah. Laura it's a naked old lady. Long before I did. Did anybody else get a, a moment of, of train spotting when he left the room? With the baby. I got a moment of train spotting from the moment he was drunk on the scene. It was <laughs> well that too. But as soon as he left that kid there, I'm like, oh no. Oh no. Yeah. I'm like, that girl hasn't moved for this entire scene. 
Mm-hmm. What are you doing, Dan? And then when they cut back to that sequence later, I was like, oh, that's Jane's playing all over again. Yeah, that whole, I mean, God, yeah. when he wakes up with the dead, yeah, that's that's a, a awful power to have to live with. Well, and it's also one of the things that keeps driving him back to the bottle. I mean, he's struggling with, like, turning into his dad. And you can see when he drinks, he rages just like his father. But uh, it, it's a combination of falling into the same family pattern and trying to escape both what happened there and the power that's kind of cursed him his whole life. There's a very well done poignant speech when he's talking about how, you know, drinking is the only way that he can connect with his dad. Yeah. Oh, where he's getting the, uh, was it eight year chip? Yeah. Wow. Now, what about Abra? What'd you think about her? I thought oh. for, I mean, I thought she did a great job as the protagonist in this one. I think she, I think she was Danny plus, you know, super strong on the whole shining thing. But I thought her character, while it's sometimes it was a little unbelievable f- with the amount of stuff that a girl of her age was having to deal with. But I think she was solid. I think they kind of played up to that a bit where she feels invincible because she is a child and she takes on a bit more than she should have before she really understood what her power was, especially in the sequence where she, you know, lures her into her room. You yeah, know, before she really understood what she was dealing with, too. That was so yeah. cool. Yeah, that whole scene was great. Yeah. She not only traps her, but robs her head, which uh, like this is something that Rose has never encountered. Like someone who isn't a member of the Knots can't resist her. Not only did this girl trap her, but she stole secrets out of Rose's own head. And that's something that she's never in all of the decades she's lived. And physically hurt her. Yeah. Yeah. Without her even being there physically. (laughs) Yeah. I thought the casting across the board was was solid. And, and you know, a lot of the people here you've, you've seen in other things, but they're not like huge names other than Ewan McGregor for the most part. And I, I thought everybody that was in it was perfect casting. Took me a second to realize where I knew Barry the Chunk from. He played the groundskeeper in Haunting of Hill House. Oh, okay. Ah, There's yeah, a lot of Haunting of Hill House because uh, Haunting of Hill House was actually one of the inspirations for the original book. Hmm. We're seeing a lot of that DNA through both the original and the remake. Yeah, and Flanagan, like any director, has his has his little cast of of people Stable. that he yeah that he threw in here and there throughout the film. Well, he's a hell of an actor, Robert Longstreet. So you know, use away. Oh my God! And and uh, Zon McLaren, I was not familiar with him, but as Crow Daddy, he was legitimately terrifying character. Yeah, and I got a very Lou Diamond Phillips vibe from him in mm-hmm. this one. Yeah, I'll I'll follow you on that one. He very menacing. Yeah, the guy who just gets it done type of thing. I'm doing it because I because I have to. And he's kind of a face in the crowd. Like if you saw him in a lineup of actors, you wouldn't necessarily pick him out. Like maybe like a Rebecca Ferguson or Ewan McGregor. Like he's he's got charisma, but he's not like the guy that's in the forefront. But when he's on screen, you just can't stop watching whatever it is he's doing. And just be fascinated by him. I mean, he really, he, he stood, he shined. <laughs> and no, you, could see, <laughs> you could just see in the way he carries himself and his methods, why he is like the right hand. He's second in command of the true knot. Mm-hmm. How great was uh, that death scene for Grandpa Flick? That was really intense. The death scenes for all of them were pretty bizarre. 
And that actually leads in perfectly, Pat, to where I was going is when Grandpa's dying and Rose is talking to him about how he's seen kingdoms rise and fall and all this stuff. I'm wondering in the book if they really expand on, at all about how long these people have been around. Maybe not any one particular character, but just in general, because it seems like he'd been around for centuries. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, they specifically say in the book that he, he'd been around since uh, the people in Europe were worshiping trees. Uh, yeah, th- there's there's a few things th- that are, like I said, pretty different and a- answer one of the questions that I didn't have until I'd been able to compare the two is if there's so few of them left, uh, why do they go all in on this? It's like, sure, they're they're running out of food, but this girl is obviously very dangerous. Yeah, why run to the thing that can destroy you? Well, but I think Rose's own kind of ego came into play because she felt like because she was kind of untouchable up to that point it didn't matter that it was a child and no matter how strong she was she wasn't going to be be able to outsmart her yeah she and she and she wanted to punish someone for daring i think that the answer to that question is satisfactory but uh yeah it's it's definitely a let's let's not let's not forget that you know if she had factored in you know dan torrance Obviously, you know, their whole battle plan would have changed. They thought they were just going to be coming up against one powerful little girl who didn't know what the hell was going on. Sure, yeah. The fact that they were able to conceal Dan's existence until the climax of the movie makes all the difference. And, uh, like, it was still still a near thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they'd known she had a mentor, obviously they would have taken her a little more seriously, I believe. Well, also remember, Rose huffed, like, the last two vials before she took off. Mm-hmm. To come at him too. Yeah, so she's she like stuff. supercharged. I like the whole world building of this one. I like the idea. I mean, initially I was I was kind of turned off with, oh, you know, they're psychic vampires. Yeah, that's what we're going up against. But I think the creation of the world and the cre- the building out of each of the characters, how they bring people into the knot and that sort of thing, it won me over. I was I was much more I was happier with this movie than I expected to be. Yeah, and you can imagine them just having this nomadic lifestyle in all of their Winnebago's and RVs, just traveling from place to place, taking what they want. And their time is starting to pass, so they're getting more desperate. And by the way, I would be more than happy to live in the RVs if they all looked like Rose did. Well, she had the best one. Yeah, when she first walked, opened the door and walked in, they pan over and they show you this. And I was like, holy shit, I would love to live in that thing. <laughs> All I can think is, how the hell do they keep everything from falling over while they're driving? Magic. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, it's all magic. Magic and bungee cords. Oh, yeah, they've they've had years to practice. Right. (laughs) Have you seen this gun? It shoots glue. (laughs) That's not a gun. That's your takeaway? Glue guns, man. They're magic. Who knows how they work? Uh, Danny finding his purpose at the same time he's finally coming to grips with his addiction. You finally, instead of running from The Shining, using it to fi- make others find peace, kind of tying into the title. He's he's Dr. Sleep. He's ushering people beyond. I thought that was a really cool choice. Mm-hmm. And the scenes with him as a child, the woman in the bathroom being afraid to go to the restroom is legitimately a childhood terror. Even as an adult, it's like, holy fuck, that's terrifying to think about. Every time you go to the bathroom, what's going to come from behind the curtain to try and grab me when I'm peeing? 
Well, and that's the strength he's got. He, he's seen these people who are still around after death. And all of these people are terrified that maybe I, I thought there was an afterlife. Maybe I believe in God, but I'm afraid in my darkest moment that I'm wrong and I'm just going to be nothing. I can relate to that, but they have this characters like, you know what? I've been a fuck up my whole life. But the one thing I can tell you, I know for sure is that there's something after. Because mm-hmm. that's part of his demons is he's had to deal with people that live on after. That followed him back. Not all, And not all of them are horrible. Yeah, and I think in the movie, we really, outside of Halloran, all we really saw were the horrible people, it seemed like. Well, yeah, but Halloran would be that that example that he knows that you can stick around. Yeah, it's kind of like the Jedi. Strike me down and I'll become even stronger. The, the, you talked about how there were so few of the not left. They make reference a couple times in the film. Maybe, I'm, maybe I misread what was being said, but Rose had said there's more of us out there than what you're seeing here. And then at the end, when he's talking to Abra, when he comes back, he mentions that, you know, there's more of them out there. There's still some out there. I don't think she was Queen B. I think she was just Queen B of that faction. Anybody else? Yeah, she was like a clan, like a clan leader. Uh, yeah, well, they, they leave that ambiguous, whether she was lying or whether she was telling the truth. Like, I don't think we're ever going to see a sequel to this. No, I don't think, I don't think King would have signed on to part of the deal, but I felt like when Danny was talking to her at the end that he made it clear that there was, but maybe I was misreading it. Uh, it seemed to me he wanted to make sure Abra was aware that there could still be more out. It's like, don't like, always be vigilant. Mm. Yeah, we, we lucked out this time, but uh, don't push it. What did he say? Stick, walk with your head down. Well, and that was the thing is that's what he did his whole life. And he said he was wrong, but he wanted to say, you know, even though I'm telling you that it's right for you to let your gift shine, you still got to be careful Mm -hmm. because there could still be more of them out there. There's always a bigger fish. But I I was really pleased with this one. I walked into it. I did not expect to enjoy this one as much as I did. I figured it was going to devolve into a psychic versus psychic battle at the end. I thought it would get a lot cheesier than it actually did. But I think it it definitely followed up and gave Danny Torrance good closure on his character and gave us an answer to how did this kid handle everything that happened? You know, what are the highs and the lows and a good redemption for him at the end of it? So how do we feel about the overlook at the end? I was amazed. I mean, just just from a, a filmmaking standpoint, I was amazed at how well they they rebuilt it and pulled it off. I was impressed with it, finding out that they went back and got the original blueprints for it. Even more impressed. You got a lot of the hotel is alive at the end of this one, like with the lights coming on as he was walking through. Yeah the hotel and the hotel almost like the heartbeat started when they got in there and that sort of thing. So it's, it was really kind of like reawakening the beast when he walked in. And it kind of brought things full circle, having them almost go through a lot of the same paces in a different context. And it was, it was kind of neat to, to see how that all played out. And again, with the book being different, you know, I don't know how much that deviates from the, the source material, but Hundred percent. It was it was fun to watch all of the things kind of happen again in a different in a different context. Really, really strong choice though. Uh, Pat, you got any thoughts on this? I really like this movie a lot. 
up until the the overlook part where it was a little bit cheesy in the overlook scenes, but not really, really bad and not like take me out of the moment bad. It just there was you know it, it was going a little bit past homage into the cheesy realm, but it wasn't it wasn't horrible. And oh, so- a little too much wink and a nod. Oh, remember this place for you? Yeah, exactly. At, at some point, they were really get, starting to get to that point in, in a couple spots, but they didn't. They didn't run past that point. It wasn't anything egregious or anything. So I felt like they towed the line well enough when they could have trounced all over it. I, overall, I, I I didn't even know this existed until we chose this this topic. I didn't know that the sequel existed at all. I didn't know it was written. I didn't know that the movie was out there. Hmm. And I'm glad to have watched it. I really enjoyed it. Um, it was. It was it was an it was a fun romp, and I enjoyed the villains, and I enjoyed learning more about Danny and how he how his life ended up, and it was you know again a, a, another good job done by Mike Flanagan. Well, and after seeing how incredibly strong it was, and then how incredibly not strong the sequel was. Not that it was a terrible movie, but it didn't hold a candle to the original, the first half of the story. I felt like this was pretty a pretty solid ending chapter to the story, mm-hmm. and from a film standpoint. Again, not discounting the books in this case, but yeah, I, I honestly think that this movie was underappreciated. I can go with that. One of the cool questions that Suzanne had while watching it was: Danny Torrance runs into the hotel, runs down to the basement, turns on the lights, and fires up the boilers. And she's like, "How does he know how to do that? He was never down there in the first movie." I mean, he's a psychic. I mean that. I mean that was that was my excuse. Hey, he's he's a psychic. He's got he's got the shining. He's watching people that were down there before him do it. That's why. So, well, and Halloran took him on a tour, and he lived there as you guys stated. Yeah, you know, quite a few months. Yeah, what are are the odds that he didn't go down there with his dad at some point? Yeah, yeah. What kid doesn't want to go hang out with their dad? Or if you want to destroy the place, we'll just turn everything on as high as it can go. It's got to do something. (laughs) <laughs> well and the faulty boiler is how the overlook was destroyed in the original book so that's they were really trying to toe the line between making sure that they were respectful to both of the sources and in some ways i think they alienated the hardcore must be exactly like the book readers which is a shame because who knows maybe i would have come away with a more negative uh opinion had i read the book first and then watched the movie mm-hmm. but i'm glad i didn't because i ended up enjoying both but yeah especially for people who read the first like pat you re- read the original book you get the time check out the novel for dr sleep i think you'll like it a lot so are we doing a thumbs up thumbs down or is that already pretty i, I think it may be pretty obvious on this one yeah but thumbs up all around, I think. Yeah, th- four and four. Yeah. At least, at least we had some stuff to talk about instead of just throwing out favorite scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is unusual for films that we like that we <laughs> can get this in depth. But when you've got something like this, it's that's such strong kind of material. Remember, remember that scene with with the with the blood in the elevator. Yeah, yeah that's pretty cool. That was that great. Was cool. That was cool. The, the big wheel down the hall. It was like pretty, yeah. pretty sweet. Yeah, I wish I had a big wheel like that big, like super big <laughs> for an adult and like a big hotel I could ride it in. Oh, I did have actually a funny story. Uh, the Cheesy Riders keychain that I had was the orange tag with number 237 on it. Oh, nice. Yeah. I figured, cool. you know, it was haunted, so I figured I needed it. R.I.P. As I said, it, it was, it was going to kill me or I was going to kill it. You won? 
<laughs> All right, so Joel, what are we doing next week? <laughs> uh, next week we're going to be caught in a loop. Ooh, we're a couple weeks off, but we're doing the Groundhog Day show versus Russian Doll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Russian Doll on Netflix. Looking forward to that. Uh, if you have your thoughts about time loops or anything you think we missed in our discussion of Doctor Sleep and The Shining, let us know. Give us a call at seven zero eight now. Wrap that seven zero eight six six nine nine seven two seven. And again, if you're looking for our older stuff, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Blueberry, Stitcher, all over that web. Google Podcast app. Just type in our 40 going on 14 and we will be there. Until next week, thanks for listening. And Rob, don't drive angry. Red rum. Red, red rum. <laughs> you fucker. <laughs>